Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, Recently, actually last week, on the show we had uh, Adam Greenfield, technology critic, talking about radical technologies. Uh, And uh, he was looking in in a critical but uh, very well-informed way at a lot of the uh, major technological revolutions that is that are buffeting us as we speak. And one of the things we talked about um, was how the representation, the presentation, the, the cell of some new technologies is already starting to shape the way that we interpret them uh, sort of regardless of what exactly the technology in question is doing. And the example that we were talking about was uh, Tesla's autopilot and uh, Greenfield's argument was that by naming this very robust system autopilot, it kind of gave a kind of a false sense of a of a magical universe where we can really just trust the car to do everything, uh, which is obviously something that many car manufacturers are racing towards in many ways. And his point was that by creating kind of a false security. Uh, uh, the name itself and just the kind of hype, if you will, around the technology uh, helped feed into the uh, one death that occurred uh, in relationship to the technology. Albeit, admittedly, the fellow was, was being uh, more than a little reckless, but uh, just a couple of days ago, the um, National Transportation Safety Board uh, studied this problem and they concluded that the, the Tesla system played, quote, played a major role in this fatal crash. And it's a very interesting thing when you read deeper into the article because it kind of reflects, uh, it's almost like a, 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 an allegory of this much larger question of how human beings are interacting with these incredibly powerful systems that we're creating that in many ways are uh, taking certain kinds of decision, making certain kinds of uh, normally or earlierly human functions and putting them in, under direct algorithmic control and how we wrestle with what that means. What does it mean legally? What does it mean morally? What does it mean existentially? I mean, it's, it's let alone economically. So there's these huge questions that we are now embedded in, in terms simply just of, of, of automation uh, alone. But and so digging further into the, to the article, I found this, this was such a strange phrase. One of the guys on the panel at the uh, NTSB said that the, crit- the problem with the autopilot was it, quote, gave far too much leeway to the driver to divert his attention to something other than driving, unquote. So it's that it's the system's fault that it gave the human operator too much room to maneuver and therefore allowed the human operator to take too much time and attention away from the machine and thereby at least contributing to the accident. I mean, there were problems with the uh, the system as well. It misrecognized the side of a truck, but it wasn't supposed to be on a highway where there were trucks. Anyway, so it's complicated details, but I just love the idea that the system is at fault for allowing the human being more room to maneuver <laughs> and make decisions about their own attention, which makes sense on one level and another level is the kind of circuitous, almost like a weird feedback loop that we get. And if you look into the heart of this weird feedback loop, you start to get a sense of the disorientation, the strangeness, the and the the technological marvel of uh, the kinds of situations that we are looking at with automation. So uh, luckily this week we're going to continue these sorts of conversations, and I can think of no better person to have them with than uh, my old pal Ken Goldberg. And uh, 
Ken is a, a professor and chair of the Industrial Engineering and Operations Research Department at Berkeley, and he's you know got a lot of other positions. He's also part of the School uh, of Information. But most interestingly, at least for me, that that Ken is also part of the Art Practice Department because in, dis- in addition to being a roboticist, like a guy who actually builds robots and works with, uh, especially on the side of working with cloud computing and and uh, you know dense information networks as as augmentations and ways of approaching problems in robotics. He's also an artist, and in fact, I first heard about Ken with an art project he did called the Telegarden. Uh, Ken was the first guy to hook up a robot to to a web browser back in like ninety four, ninety three. And this led to the, the Telegarden, which was a, a garden that had a robot in it, and uh, users over the, the web could uh, direct the, the robot to, uh, you know, take care of the plants and, you know, weed and, and water. And uh, it was, you know, in the lobby of uh, Ars Electronica for, uh, for about a decade. And it was, you know, a wonderful, you know, now looking back, a kind of sweetly naive uh, vision of the integration of machines and the earth and, you know, human distributed humans through the, uh, through the internet, you know, almost like the uh, Richard Brodigan poem, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, uh, which is still a, a wonderful touch point for thinking about technology, but definitely one that does not reflect the more dystopian fears that uh, seem to be dominating the conversation and that Ken also has a lot of stuff uh, to talk about. So with no further ado, Ken, welcome uh, welcome to Expanding Mind. Thank you, Dave. Eric. Um, that was a great intro. Well, <laughs> hey, thanks, man. It's my job. <laughs> <laughs> I was just enjoying it. I was like, wow, go on. Uh, so many things I want to talk to you about. I know, I right off that. the bat, you know, it's all there. I mean, we, we, could, we could start out if you want it, if you want to riff on the autopilot thing at all, just because it just happened. And I'm you know, it's been like, uh, again, one of those things in the media where, where you see both the specific technical problems, but also the sort of larger issue of how humans interpret our increasingly powerful automated uh, devices. And so I'm sure you have something to say on that. But, you know, really, we can go anywhere. Well, I, absolutely. I'd love to come back to that. I mean, I just want to mention you, you, you mentioned the Telegarden and the um, sweetly naive um, I appreciate that characteristic. I, I think there was a sense at going back there that we were certainly I was naive, but at the but I think there was also a sense of wanting to be a little bit um, poetic about this, and there was a there was a critique built into it. Um, we we used the phrase um, that that the garden was 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 basically being tended by the ten, the tender movements of the industrial robot. And in, I still like that phrase of the tender movements of the industrial robot because it was it was meant to bring out exactly what you were getting at, which is, you know, like brought again the machines of love and grace. This idea of um, the contrast between you know this um, supposedly benevolent technology that also you know has the capacity to essentially you know crush us <laughs> at a moment's notice well yeah I, w- I want to lean in and just say that that, that I, I maybe it wasn't the, the most apt term I guess I, I used it because I also felt that I was naive at that point and while the irony was always part of that work and part of your other 
of uh, your other artworks, and also in the Brodigan poem, which people mostly miss. You know, a lot of times the Brodigan poem is brought up as an example of the kind of foolishness of uh, foolish idealism of the hippies who thought that the machines were just going to take care of everything. And while there was part that was an, there was an element of that that's true, uh, Brodigan himself was definitely injecting that thing with a with a kind of dark. Uh, dark irony, but uh, so I, yes, there's there's always been that that complexity and that humor mixed with terror <laughs> around you know uh, these images of 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 robots. I and mean, we could go on and talk about all the kind of you know uh, the ways in which robots have played a role in, in popular imagination. Um, not so much. What, what interests me there is not so much, uh, you know, exactly going into what does it say that we we think about HAL or we think about C-3PO or whatever the, the robot in question is, but more that our imaginations and beliefs about robots just on a popular level as, you know, ma- masses of relatively uninformed and sometimes significantly uninformed people, at least uninformed technologically, about what's going on, that those ideas and beliefs and fantasies are part of the story. I mean, and so it must be very weird for you to be there and be, you know, know your computer science, know your algorithms, know your, you know, robotic uh, manipulations and hands and grippers and all that stuff and have, you know, be at a central part of the whole development of uh, autonomous robots and, and, and just the ways that robots are working in industry. And at the same time, you're kind of like working with fantasy because there's no way that humans seem to be able to stop fantasizing both with fear and with, with desire about robots. So it's, it must be a very, I'd like to hear more about what that's like to kind of be aware of these two very different dimensions that are coming together, uh, all over the place. Absolutely. Okay, so um, there, it absolutely is. The, that's how it feels right now. I feel like we are in the the, the midst of a, a myth, myth mythologizing that is somewhat staggering. I mean, it's it's very much like the um, um, the when that the the housing or the mortgage crisis, right? There were certain people who started to see this as a train wreck, and they saw down the road that there was um there was going to be um some pretty dire consequences that 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 there were a bunch of pieces of evidence but but people were still kind of uh operating under certain illusions or myths right about how things were going and they didn't see um this sort of train wreck coming i very much think we're in something similar to that right now and specifically around the self-driving car um and I'm glad you brought up the Tesla autopilot, and and because you know every day I'm I'm reading in the paper that um, Tesla, Uber, they're about to release their 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 fully autonomous vehicles. This is in the the Chronicle just released that you know even Trump is supportive of this, and at the same time the 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 researchers I know all agree that we're actually very far from this level five autonomy, the full autonomous car. And, and I, I can tell you that it is, I would love to talk to you about it because I think that this is, there's a, there's a, there's an expectation that this is going to happen. It's going to happen very soon. And it's the, the, that bubble is going to burst and we're not going to get there and people are going to be hugely disappointed and there's going to be a backlash that is going to be against robots for that will really be a setback for us. 
Oh, well, that makes sense. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, you know, we one of the colleagues that, that you're talking about, I suspect, is Dave Mendel, who we've had on the show, and we were talking about this at the time about how the sort of vision of the fully autonomous car uh, is, you know, a, both a kind of market move, a hype move, and a and a myth, but one that is also has to do with a certain kind of engineering. And this is the kind of engineering where the engineer, a sort of utopian engineering, where the idea that, yes, we can actually design the system with so much power and so much clarity and so much control that we can leapfrog over all of these other kinds of problems that almost that inevitably come up with any kind of technological system. And that that sort of utopian engineering has really been part of how Silicon Valley has sold itself, has made itself the site of so much fascination and desire and power. But if you talk to engineers, and especially if you look at the history of how human beings actually interact with complicated systems, you get something much more messy and not so utopian, but more real and in some ways more workable. And it seems like that's also part of the tension that's going on around this vision of the autonomous car. Absolutely. So that's right. So there's this utopian ideal that tends to extrapolate ahead, right, and tends to say, and, and Mindell is exactly right, he knows this very well, that um, even though we can do some things um, like we can actually drive a car fairly well um, on, a, on a freeway, and that I believe we're going we're gonna to get better and better at, and so that it will be a huge relief for um, long-distance truck drivers, for example, they'll be able to sleep for long segments, I think that's going to happen. And I also think we're going to see driving in uh, very, very congested areas. So that bumper-to-bumper traffic that you experience on the Bay Bridge or everywhere at certain times of the day, that's miserable to drive through. But that's also relatively easy to automate because you're just moving slowly and you can sort of see things around you and you're, again, on a freeway. It's the middle conditions, the huge number of corner cases that – Everyone thinks, well, if you can do those two, you're, you're done. It's not the case. The problem is once you get off the freeway and you have to drive through a suburban area or an urban area that's got uh, all kinds of one-way streets and pedestrians and people double parked and, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, the actors in a, a typical city, um, dogs, bike riders, that's when it gets extremely hard. And so that utopian extrapolation doesn't work. And that's what we're, I think David and I are trying to emphasize, and we're, we're some of the lone voices out there, but we're trying to say, hey, um, you know, pay attention to this. And there's another person who's really, I would recommend reading, um, Rodney Brooks, who, or maybe you can, you can interview him at some point. He's an amazing um, roboticist, and he's been writing, he's working on a book right now, um, but he talks about this, and he has this beautiful example of what he calls the horn problem. Should I describe the horn it problem? Sure, why not? Okay, the horn problem is the following: that um, imagine you're you're driving your car, or a robot is driving a car, um, and you come down on a one-way street, and you see there's a car blocking you, so you can't get around. So what do you do? Well, typically, um, before you honk your horn, you you look around, and oh, you see somebody helping an old lady toward the car. And so you figure out, you infer that she's, you know, she's moving along and you just sit back and you wait a few minutes. Alternatively, you might have looked and you see some guy chatting with his, somebody else on the side and uh, they just has his back to you and he's not paying attention. So you, you, you touch on the horn really lightly, just a quick, you know, heads up. 
Now, two things can happen. Either the guy turns around and he's like, oh, excuse me. You know, he just gives you the symbol body language of, oh, I'm sorry. I will quick wrap it up and I'll be right on my way. Or he turns around with a kind of, you know, screw you, buddy kind of attitude. And um, that's going to determine what you do next, which is either lay on the horn or start backing up or write at different things. And that turns out to be to interpret those nuances of all the, the different spectrum of things that can be happening there. Uh, that really would require solving general AI. I mean, you really not driving is much more complicated. You have to understand what humans are doing on the side of the road and how they're interpreting and communicating with with um, with you in the vehicle. So if you take the uh, human out and you're talking about level five AI, which is this mythical taxi that's going to drive around and um, you know completely on its own, that is uh, it's going to get stuck in all kinds of environments and. There and then and then it, as soon as you start getting stuck or driving off the road, as an example you described, then we're going to start really backing up, and there's going to be a huge pullback from this, and uh, and and you know then we'll be set back very far uh, from the course of, um, of of this whole myth. And so I, I just want to say I'm I'm willing to bet we're not going to have fully autonomous cars for ten years, even twenty years in the future. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and that, uh, but I, one thing that came up when you were describing that is it is the way in which, let's say, our 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 fantasy and de- and desire to some degree for the fully autonomous taxi, it kind of encourages us sort of to not pay as much attention to just how complex ordinary behavior is. Like there's sort of like you know it to us it feels kind of simple and irritating like oh god the guy's parked oh i've got to do this thing and okay oh, hey, come on buddy da, 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 get through oh, it's just this sort of hassle <laughs> that we're like can we automate this and get away from those hassles but if you actually look at the hassle it reflects just how complex human behavior is how complex you know assessing the nature of any event is and so it throws us back on this this issue that that seems to be one of the things that is also being the kind of the kind of parallel uh, story to the story of automation and how we're fantasizing and new mythologies are emerging is this constant changeover in what human beings are and, and how much we can hand over and how simple we might actually be. So it's a weird, you know, it's like a parallel thing. And you are someone who's who's still very strong about look, even in the future when we have very very robust you know, uh, auto, uh, you know, robot systems or technological systems that have that are drawing from the strength of big data, who are using machine learning to very quickly ramp up and learn about how the world operates and how to move through it. That even then, there's still going to be room for human beings. There's go- you need room for human beings to be part of the loop because they still have certain capacities and will for for a long time. Let's say. Uh, that need to be recognized, underscored, and even trained, because of course that's also where future jobs are going to be become, you know. And so I, I, I and we, you know, I know this because we've had previous conversations about it. And I'd like to just hear you a little bit more on what that line is, because I know you know there's a lot of uh, singularitarians, there's a lot of technological, fi- you know, people, there's a lot of uh, science fiction writers who are like, nah, that's just that's just humanism, that's just some nostalgic fantasy about humans being special and these things are actually just going to win and or take over whatever you want to say and you're like no i don't think that's true and i'd I'd really like to hear 
for you what, what those things are and, and how we can already see that unfolding in what's happening with technology now? Okay, well, I think this, that you're, you're hit on the key word for me is the singularity. I mean, I think this, this word has a lot of traction. It's, it's compelling, I get it, because it's, it's, a, it's a good word. It, um, it, 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 it sort of implies this, this event horizon, right, where suddenly things are going to change and then, and then everything will, will accelerate quickly from there. Uh, so just, just as there is in a black hole, the edge of a black hole. And so I think that people want to get around this. They, they, they think, okay, we need to prepare. And, um, um, and, and an example, obviously, Elon Musk is a very uh, forceful advocate of this, but there are many people on the board, including Sam Harris and others who are very eloquent on many, on many points, but I think get this profoundly wrong. Um, and so it's because I think that the singularity is a very counterproductive and a very scary concept uh, for for anyone listening to it, it um, especially though I think it's for the many um, workers out there who are let's say employed as truck drivers or uh, cab drivers, and they're hearing this and 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 they're they they have to assume that if you know these these uh, quote experts are talking like this, then it's going to happen. And the what everything I've learned about robotics keeps emphasizing and re-emphasizing how how complex humans are and that even that that we you know it's a it's a it's a misconception that we're on the verge of replacing humans or achieving human abilities yes we can play games like chess or go with um with uh computer systems but those are those are perfect information games you know exactly what the board looks like you have all the information about um, what the environment is, but this is so far different from the kind of scenario of moving through um, a city street or uh, even a worker in a kitchen or a plumber, a contractor, um, carpenter. Those those workers are dealing with extremely nuanced and complex things, and we're not even anywhere close to achieving those levels of, of, of dexterity and complexity with robots. You know, I want to ask you a question about the singularity, you know, this idea that at some point, uh, you know, machines are, are going, to, going to achieve general artificial intelligence and be able to kind of reproduce themselves and get so much smarter, so much faster and get their hands on the network that we essentially pass through this different point in history and no human can think you know, catch up with it, that, you know, it has, it has, you know, totally science fiction expressions, but there's, of course, a lot of, uh, you know, people working in technology, working in the Silicon Valley, working in research who, who believe, you know, versions of it. I'm curious, just from your perspective, just dealing with students, colleagues, people you meet at conferences, you know, the people in your actual working world or the larger networks of your actual working world, how strong is this idea within that kind of community or, or what flavor does it take? Are there, are, is some of that apocalypticism widespread or is it still a kind of smaller group of people who are just really obsessed with it and most people are just, you know, trying to deal with the problems at hand and, and not really think about that? Well, people talk about it. I mean, I think that my students and my colleagues, you know, are amused to some degree by the singularity discussions because we know how far we are from I mean, I always make the analogy with when um, um, in neuroscience, uh, you know, when there recently a neuroscientist was asked how um, 
how far are we, how close are we to understanding the brain? And he said, if understanding the brain is like walking a mile, how far we've come so far? Three inches. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because that's a, pretty much what I would say the same thing about robotics, right? <laughs> to really getting human level um, robots we, we, is, 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 a, is walking a mile. Um, we've gone three inches. I mean, what, and I don't mean to say this as a, as a negative that we should stop research on robotics or that it's, um, that it's a failure failed field at all. What I want to say is it's just so complex that we can do certain things, but getting to the level of reliability, of nuance, of control, of um, robustness that humans exhibit is, is a real challenge. So I do have an alternative, though, I want to posit to singularity. I'm ready for it. All right. Okay. So I, I've been, um, you know, basically concerned about this this idea. And I, I have been thinking about something I want to propose as um, what I call the multiple a called multiplicity and it's deliberately chosen to contrast with with the singularity uh phrase or term but it's it's very different it really is and it draws to some degree on Deleuze and Guattari and Bergson's earlier ideas about multiplicity which was really about the idea of multiple viewpoints existing simultaneously a, a postmodern idea of um of not a, a, a sort of singular definition or interpretation of a text. But it, it, in, in this case, I'm thinking about it as multiplicity is a, is a case where we have groups of, of humans and groups of machines working together. And let, let, what I'll, I'll say is that the AI actually is very relevant to this because one of the fundamental insights of artificial intelligence in the last few years has come from ensemble theory. And what this and there's a there's a whole rigorous subfield uh, here, which basically says that if you have a classifier, you train a classifier on data, um, and then you test it on new data, um, you evaluate it, you can measure how how good it performs, and you get a number out of that. But now what you can do is you can say train a number of classifiers um, with different slightly different subsets of the data set. And then you train, and then you combine those classifiers together. When you test that on the test set, it will perform better than the single classifier. And so, and we can measure how much. The so some the the, the contrast is between decision tree, an individual decision tree, and what's called a random forest, which is a collection of decision trees. Or what Deleuze and Guattari <laughs> would call a rhizome. <laughs> Well, it has yeah. something to do with rhizome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that is right. So what you show is that, um, that and it's shown time and time again, random forests are extremely effective. They were, they were developed at Berkeley, by the way, in the stats department. But their idea is that um, the key fundamental aspect of them is that you have to have each of the trees be sufficiently diverse. So that if all the trees are the same, you don't get this property. But if there's a diversity among the trees, then you get this property. And then you can measure that too, which is the variance of the of the of the properties of each of each tree. Now, what that that te the insight there is that diversity is is extremely important and valuable in in getting a robust answer and getting high performance out of a system like this. And analogous results are showing showing up in across the field of machine learning and um, and AI. That what 
to make these systems work well, we can't just have them be trained on a, on a very monolithic data set or homogeneous data set. You, you need to have a lot of diversity in the, in the examples and in the processing and the algorithms. So that, and, I, and the same thing is, is, is very true in groups of humans, that there's these experiments on collective intelligence that you, you've probably heard of, where they, they do these group decision-making or group innovation um, experiments, and they find that if the group is very similar, homogeneous, it, it performs much worse than a group that's diverse. Right, and I think one of the points when I read something you wrote about this, that it's it's that the diversity is more important than a, a kind of quantified measure like IQ. Like the IQ is actually not as important, even if you're like these are super bright people, but they're all homogeneous. That that's not necessarily going to help you as much as a more widely spread, random. You know, not that there aren't already problems with IQ, but just to to say that diversity is is really powerful. It's not just simply a nice, you know, bit of frosting for the cake. Like it's something you really need for that kind of innovation uh, to happen. Exactly. So it's, it's actually exactly right because we know, um, you know, you, you get the echo chamber. When you get a bunch of very bright people in a room, they start reinforcing each other. And then they come to, you know, they get locked into certain uh, ways of thinking. And this, you know, we see this in the stock market. They, they do experiments, economic games, where you try and estimate the price of commodities. And the same thing happens. But when you get a diverse, you get few people in there who are outliers, who are just thinking differently. They, they cause everybody else to rethink or reassess their own assumptions. And the group as a whole comes to much better conclusions. And so I want to make an analogy between that and the, what we've learned in, in machine, what we know from machine learning, where we see similar behavior and say, actually, these are the bigger lesson from this is that what we need to do is start thinking about groups, group dynamics, where we really think in new ways about how do we create this diversity? How do we manage the diversity? And then uh, we can also consider the, the new, this new category of thinking, this um, neuro, neuro, you know, in a neurodiversity diversity context, we now are introducing new kinds of AI, and they're going to be taking a seat at the table alongside this diverse group of people. And how do we factor that in? How do we incorporate them into a group decision-making process? So it's not the machine versus the humans, but it's machines and humans integrated and working together. And this is not well understood. We have no idea how to, how to do this systematically. But I think that is a fundamental frontier for research. Can you talk more specifically about the kinds of uh, projects and uh, research projects that you've been doing that, that, that you know, play with that problem, look at it, or, or try to figure out what it would mean to have a, the, the, the sort of humans and robots at the same table, at the, or AIs at the same table, trying to work well, together? Well, one example is where this is being studied is where um, there's, in the context of the game of Go, right? So there were just results earlier this summer. And DeepMinds um, has been actually an advocate of this because um, um, they have recognized that when you have groups of players, they, humans can do certain things better than the machine right now. We don't know exactly which, who's better at what. But, um, and clearly the machines are doing something what we would call you know, innovative. They're, they're making moves that we, haven't, that we don't recognize as good moves and that turn out to be good moves. But um, one thing they're doing is doing this uh, pair go where they group 
humans and machines together. And one of the things, the challenges is, how do, how do you make that work? For example, sometimes the human could get in the way. It could slow down the machine. And so you can actually get worse performance when you have humans in the loop. But the question is, there's some cases where certain parts of the game where the human's input can be extremely valuable. And you want the machine to essentially know when it's confident or not so confident, and then it will be able to draw more on the human's, um, on the human's uh, capacities and vice versa. So what I want to get at is this idea of learning confidence and a, a, real, a, a realistic assessment of not just your, what, what, your, what you think is happening, but also how confident you are in that, um, in, that, in that feeling. And we see this in my own work in my lab in, the, in work on robot grasping. So what we're doing right now is training robots to grasp objects in, let's say, a warehouse environment. And we're finding that one of the things that has been neglected by a lot of researchers is factoring in the confidence level of the of the system. So the system should have an should maintain at all levels, at all at all stages, a an estimate of how confident it is. And when it's confident, it can go ahead and do perform a, a grasp. But when it's not confident, it should do something different. It should either try and gain more information, maybe move the objects on the table so that it can get a better view or get more information, or stop and ask for human is it human input hmm. that's interesting it it it, uh, it it suggest you know raises a lot of questions or uh, for me about um, some of the consequences in terms of automation but part of the vision here is is that by acknowledging by being more realistic about how decision making operates in, in environments where there are sophisticated machines and human beings trying to get complicated things done in the world uh, you, you not only avoid some of the traps of this u- utopian engineering idea, but you also acknowledge and point towards the, the forms of labor that will be required and, and, you know, exactly how that works out. You know, obviously automation is going to take s- certain kinds of jobs away from human beings now, but they're not necessarily jobs people want. But then, of course, the fear is, like you were saying, the fear of the truck driver or the cab driver is like, oh, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm toast. I'm, I'm out of the historical current now. And really, there's we don't know really, or and in, in, in maybe you even have a, a better sense of the the ways in which automation isn't just isn't going to just simply undermine all of uh, these um, whole you know categories of jobs, but really suggest different kinds of work that is going to be necessary more uh, you know uh, management oriented or more interactive or more. Um, being at the interstices between different te- technological systems where things get extra complicated and kind of being a flight controller of decision making. Uh, so how, how can you how do you see like sort of the the places we should be looking for the ways in which people will work alongside these systems in the future? Well, um, exactly. I think that one of the things and, and again, I'm I'm very hopeful for the future of, of humans. I don't want to be utopian. I'm always on guard against that. And I may be wrong, by the way. But one of the things I think is that we're, we're going to start um, requiring that the, the human will start to play a role almost more in, in a sense of a, um, um, a advisor or a, a teacher in these cases. And I think that's actually even a better position for the human to be in. So 
let me make the analogy between and coming back to autopilot, which you mentioned at the beginning. So as David Mendel and others have talked about, we've had autopilots for a long time in the in, in airplanes. Right. And what's happened over time is that we, we still have pilots, but the pilot's job is actually different than it used to be. Before the pilot's job was was, you know, extremely um uh, uh, tedious and um, stressful because you just had to be glued to the all these all these controls and m- making life or death decisions constantly. And now a lot of that has been essentially um, uh, to overtaken with the autopilot. But the human is still there keeping an eye on everything. And what's also happening is the human is doing other things. So the pilot is starting to do things like um, is able to communicate more with the uh, passengers more calmly and more, you know, is is aware of things that are going on, thinking about the routes that are taken, how to avoid um, turbulence and also reduce fuel consumption. So the pilot now, you know, is much more of a sophisticated position. And I think that will, I can imagine that will be similar for um, drivers in the future, truck, truck drivers, for example. Maybe we will start at some point calling them pilots. And what they'll do is that rather than just sit there behind the wheel, you know, steering the whole time, they'll they'll be able to spend time, you know, doing some work about planning routes and thinking about future routes and optimization of fuel and uh, and and just being more um, operating at a more sophisticated level. I, I think that's going to happen in other jobs too. So some of these bone breaking jobs where you're just you know on an assembly line. I think we'll start seeing that so, that some of that will be automated, those routine tasks. But then there'll be opportunities for humans to start being involved in thinking about what how things are flowing through the factories and what things can be adjusted and changed. We won't eliminate the human, but the humans will start will will take away certain drudgery aspects of their jobs, and so then they'll be um, enhanced to perform other jobs. So I don't see it as that we're going to eliminate and just cut out um, humans altogether. I think we're going to see they're they're going to change. And by the way, this is exactly what's happened in history, going back to agriculture. Right, many of huge portion of Americans were employed on in in the fields doing bone breaking uh, agricultural jobs, and now the you know it's far fewer. What um, what has happened is though people have found new jobs that are um, often not always, but often more. Uh, rewarding and less um, less uncomfortable. And what happens because some of those jobs, like just pulling out weeds or something like that, can be done with machines. So um, what I want to get at is that I think we're going to. And then, by the way, one area that we have an, sort of unlimited demand for humans is in teaching. We have enormous uh, need for for teachers. And healthcare providers, and those are, and unfortunately, just because of the econ- economics of where we are right now, we don't have ways of um, um, incentivizing people to do those. But I can imagine that there there would be it would be terrific if we could free people up to spend time teaching. Yeah, and one of the things about teaching that that reminds me of something else you you've talked about before is just. Uh, I mean, it seems like part of your effort when imagining these sort of meshworks of humans and um, and and let's say AIs is uh, the ways in which 
technology can amplify our, our own intelligence. And that's, you know, in a way, very old. You go back to the history of people thinking about technological systems, about the, you know, the Memex and the, you know, D- Douglas Engelbart and his, his, you know, ideas of the interface in the 1960s. If, if you talk to these guys, why are you so into us? It was all about enhancement. It was all about taking human cognition and, you know, providing, making it more more quickly, more uh, larger scale, more multidimensional, uh, better memory, you know, ways of just sort of augmenting the kind of experience of cognition that we already have and learning how to learn more, more differently, better, uh, more powerfully, more efficiently, you know, whatever the kind of value structure is. I mean, there's different ways of talking about what the, the values are within uh, education and teaching. But in a way, when I heard you talk about that, you know, it's not just AI, it's IA, intelligence amplification. It's it's like, God, we just sort of stopped talking about that, at least for the general public, at least for a, a sort of overall model of how technology can be useful. It's all about social things and selling stuff and communicating, you know, to, yeah. No, exactly. What happened You're, to that stuff, Ken? Well, still, no, that's right. So we need to bring it back. I think that all the latest wave of AI is neglecting the IA, the intelligence amplification. And that's, I think it is really important to come back to that. And one of the things that it, it, it really has that capability. I mean, when I think about the, the you know, going back to Engelbart and this idea of, um, you know, uh, enhancing human capabilities. I mean, I think that look at the internet as a, as an example, I watch my, my daughter on the internet in school and it's, she's having such a more enriched experience than I had in, um, in, in, in that she's accessed so many more tools, so many more resources. And I see this in the students we're getting at Berkeley. They're, they're just getting better. Um, there's no doubt about it. They're smarter than, then clearly smarter than they were 20 years ago when the when the net first came out. But every year you see this enhancement because the tools are much better. They're accessing more resources. They're learning how to learn or think um, in a different ways. They use these tools effortlessly now because they just grew up with them. And I think that that's a perfect example of of why I'm not pessimistic about humans. I think that humans are moved. You know, we're not we're 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 moving the goalposts. We're constantly getting more sophisticated. Well, that is a hopeful a hopeful vision. I think then part of the problem, of course, is you know you're getting pretty good students at at Berkeley. Is the you know the ways <laughs> okay. in which the ways in which technology are mirroring the sort of larger economic split in America and across the world. You know, with the, the sort of widening gap between. Uh, most folks and, uh, you know, privileged, you know, financial advisors with their mega bonuses and all that, that that gets mirrored in some ways in in terms of the cultural matrix that allows people to access technologies. And you always want them to be able to to spread. And I mean, it's a very complicated problem. I mean, it's not your problem. You got the problems to deal with. But it's it's also one that, you know, always got to remember about these is is how even the best technologies get sort of absorbed into to you know larger uh, social problems and I really hope that that your call for for uh, for teaching and for kind of revitalizing teaching as a role for human beings to uh, take up and that it, it's monetized and it's valorized well, and 
No, exactly, Eric. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm very aware of the inequities that are out there. And I, I, you're right. I don't want to just hold Berkeley students up. But I want to say, though, that I think this is happening across the board. I think that students across all levels are benefiting from, from the technologies. And it's important to keep that in mind. I want to mention one thing that um, is, uh, you know, an example of where we were. We actually did change our, our education system as a result of technology. And that is the high school movement. Uh, that began in 1910, and this is there's amazingly little information on this uh, that I can find on uh, at least what I was able to locate. But what I understand is that it was, in 1910 there was a group of of educators who basically said there's all this changes to the farms, automation coming into farms, and we need to start retraining people because they can't. We're not going to. We've been training them. You know, a huge number of people were happy to drop out of high school to uh, work on the farm, but that's not that's not really sustainable in the future. And they said, we really need people to continue and complete high school. So the high school movement was essentially to create curriculum, curricula and actual, and build high schools. And if you go around America, actually many of the high schools were built in that period, right around 1910. And so what they did was they said, let's, let's actually start making this a mandate that, that um, we want to see how many people can can finish. And in 1910, when they started, 10% of Americans graduated high school. By 1950, it was up to 80%. So this massive change happened over the course of 40 years where we really rethought high school and we changed it. And we're all products of that, everyone listening um, to the show. And we, so we take it for granted. And by the way, it also opened the door to the GI Bill and all the revolution at, the, at higher education as well. So I think that what I what I say is that that is a that's a precedent for really radical changes that we can make to education in the, today. I think that 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 you know it's not just about um, you know some elitism, but really across the board. I think we really do need to start rethinking and uh, how we how we educate and going back to even preschool. I mean, one of the things that we were talking about is what, what what humans are really good at, which is this these interpersonal skills of being able to 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 empathize with each other and read each other's nuances in our language, in our tone, in our body language. Those are those are really subtle skills. By the way, ones that um, really good programmers often don't have for a variety of reasons. <laughs> but uh, but those skills, that empathetic skills and ability to read those things and then also to communicate them back, those are nuanced skills that I think we really need to start emphasizing much earlier. And, and that's and even at the preschool level, right? Remember, kindergarten was invented back in the in the 18, um, 1800s as a, you know, in terms of, you know, just get, working on assembly lines and being able to... Um, uh, do gifts and occupations, but now really we're starting to think how can how do we think of this differently? How do we think of introduce more creativity and empathy into the process and and group interaction into the process of uh, or the experience of preschool uh, K through twelve and in, and in universities? And this comes back to multiplicity because I think this is something we need to really be trying to understand and then ultimately teach, which is how do you work in groups? How do we really Think about coordinating groups, bringing the right groups together, and then working together so that we pay attention to each other, that we appreciate each other, and 
you know, acknowledge that someone who thinks very differently than me, right, is actually going to be a very valuable member of my team. All right. There I have to cut in. We have about 10 minutes left. And again, oh. I, I know from a previous conversation, you know, I'm going to all your themes here. We're talking about education. We're talking about diversity. We're talking about learning to work in groups. Of course, you're a Berkeley professor. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're deep. You're a deep Berkeley guy, or deeply Bay Area guy. And of course, what's happening, you know, over the next week at Berkeley is this Free Speech Week, uh, you know, sponsored by a conservative paper on campus, and it's already like broiling up all of these issues, which the listeners are largely going to be familiar with about potential violence, about the right of you know, conservatives to speak on campus, uh, fears from the left about this and that. And we've we've seen also recently that some uh, Berkeley professors are calling for a sort of uh, canceling of all classes and letting their students not have to go on campus. And so, you know, uh, some uh, professors are being very activist in trying to prevent this and in demanding that they not allow any of these uh, speakers to speak. And, you know, I know it's a huge, complicated issue, but because we've raised it and because it is in your face right now as a Berkeley professor, you, you're going to be thinking about this issue. How, given your, your thoughts, your, your, the, the kinds of things we've been talking about in relationship to uh, technology, how, do you, how are you looking at the, this, this whole event and what do you hope the university, uh, how, how do you hope the university handles it? How, how do you think about this very complicated thing? It's huge. I mean, you're absolutely right. I've been, I've been thinking of it as though we're, I feel like we're on the, the Florida Keys and there's a huge monster storm heading in our direction. And uh, we have to, you know, we have to get ready because, and, th- and by the way, this has been um, on the horizon really since, since the last spring. And what I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, um, that Berkeley is the epicenter of this and, the conservative movement identifies that. I think that they're completely right in raising this question in the sense that Berkeley is, is, can be extremely hypocritical if we um, try to shut down these um, speakers. I think that is an enormous mistake. I think that we should absolutely invite all of them to campus and, I've, and, and listen politely to what they have to say and disagree vehemently with them, but not violently. I think that this is actually one of the most important messages that we need to get back to, which is the idea that that, that free speech is somehow, um, um, you know, everybody's going to be safe. The fact is, no, free speech is not free and it's not safe. When, 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 when someone takes on an opinion, um, there, there, there's a risk associated with that. And whether it's a it's, it's something that, that will go against the conventional wisdom that's in any way creative or novel. It's going to be met with resistance on many different fronts. And so I think, you know, having the conservatives uh, pre- prepare and present alternative views, even some what we might want to label as, you know, ludicrous and self-serving, um, we should listen, hear them out. I mean, it's really important because we learn from that and also our students can learn from from positive and negative examples. So by no means should we be shutting this down. We should be embracing it, and it's, it's super important. And so, and yes, there are there are distractors coming in. I mean, Antifa. I have to say, um, I understand where they're coming from. I mean, who wouldn't want to punch a Nazi in the nose? I, I mean, I I I get it. I, I have that inclination myself. But I would I would say that they can't be doing this where they come in and and cause 
that shutdown of the communication is that's a huge problem. And, and Berkeley, I really think um, our administration has been making a mistake on this so far by trying to protect everyone and saying, well, we can't guarantee safety, so therefore there will be no speeches. No, we can never guarantee safety. That's not our job. Um, and I think we need to really assert that, that we are, we are as an educational institution, here to expose students to interesting and controversial ideas. And so, and sometimes that's going to, there's going to be consequences, but um, we should do our best to warn everybody to say, look, there's going to be some danger here. You know, you have to go at your own risk. There's a risk, but, um, but don't shut the whole thing down on that basis. You know, I think when you go back to the early, the, 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 Mario Savio and the others in the free speech movement, they were taking huge risks uh, with their protest. It was, you know, put your bodies on the gears and the levers of the machine, right? It was, they didn't know that the police were going to be passive. They they were tear gassed at times and they didn't know when they sat on those police cars, if the police were going to, you know, essentially shoot them. Yeah, so I mean, they, well, I, I mean, this is, I mean, it's, 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 it's heartening for me to, to hear this because I have a similar I've been following this stuff and, and a lot of the issues around uh, universities. And while I'm, I'm sympathetic to many of the, the, the progressive and left causes that are, being are, that are being espoused by many people who are you know, activists in, in contemporary campus issues, uh, that this sort of emphasis on, on safety and the way in which the administration clamps down as a way to avoid uh, confrontation and even the possibility of violence, I find really disturbing just in terms of my models of what a university should do. I'm curious, as you talk about these issues uh, with your colleagues, and, and no doubt there's a great deal of diversity, <laughs> so to speak, and uh, in terms of people's views. I mean, I know some people would be very, very vehemently disagree with you, who, you know, who are also professors or also administrators. How what's it like on the inside there in terms of how how, uh, you know, staff and professors and administration are, are talking about these things? Are you a, a, a far out on one side or are there a lot of folks who, who, who have your your kind of perspective? No, there's actually a good number who share it. In fact, the the, the new chancellor, uh, Carol Christ, is amazingly astute on this on this issue. She sent something around to um, the community, campus community that I felt was so thoughtful. And um, when earlier I had sent her a suggestion and I said, you know, rather than trying to protect everyone, why don't we um, identify an area of the campus that might be like a Hyde Park, a, a sector of the campus near the edge, but that would be clearly demarcated as a free speech zone. And it would be two things. One is that we would make no attempt to police the area um, or, or we would do our best to basically um, maintain order, but we wouldn't make a guarantee. And we'd have very clear warnings uh, around the area saying, if you come here, this, you know, you are, there is a risk associated with this. So enter at your own risk. And the idea being that anyone could come and speak there and we would just not have to, they wouldn't have to fill out forms or put down deposits or anything like that, they could just come. And it would, I think it would be essential because the, the, the then it takes away the sort of, um, we, we play right into the, the hands of the, of the extremists by saying, you can't come. I mean, then they win, right? They're, they're, they're intentionally provoking to, to get to the point where as soon as we shut them down, they declare victory. 
So we cannot be shutting anyone down. And we should be saying, you are always welcome to come here and speak here. And students should also know that if they want to go there, they're going to have to, you know, <laughs> get ready, you know, um, for whatever happens. And they're going to go there at a risk. Now, um, and, and who goes, I don't know, but we can have ability for people to at least have the potential of dialogue at any given time. And I think that that's so important. Anyway, the chancellor agreed with me, um, Carol Christ, and she said, I would love to do this, but there's a, you know, we have a legal issues that we have to um, address. And, and I, I hear that. And I, I, I understand that the lawyers are, uh, you know, saying, well, if we can't guarantee these things, we're going to be open to lawsuits and um, but then I think that that's what's we're very problematic. I think that the university has to be willing to take that risk at a certain level. And, and as long as I think we, we make it very clear that students have done this, then we've done our duty to protect them. Yeah, I mean, good good luck with that, man. I hope that I hope that works out. I mean, or, or really, because it's it, it it's to my mind, I mean, because university was so important for me in my own formation politically you know, socially in all sorts of ways, you know, I do take it very seriously as a, a really one of, you know, the more important places in, uh, in, in the culture for people to learn how to think, for people to learn how to question, to come together in new ways. It's such a, a rich time of life. And it, it feels like there's some really, in my mind, regressive forces in terms of just creating a, uh, a, a situation that does have risk in it, that does have, um, the you know social confrontation is one of the elements of it. So I, uh, but I think that's good. See, Eric, I think that's good. I think the risk, you know, going back to Kierkegaard, you, risk is actually a central part of, uh, of 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 growth and progress. We we have to be willing to take risks. It's good for us. And you know, this whole idea of trigger warnings and all that. I think the same is in the same domain. You, we can't have trigger warnings. You you, you can. People are going to have to learn at all levels that they're going to be upset sometimes, that they're going to encounter upsetting ideas. That's good. And we should we should really be applauding it and encouraging it. So I want to mention that we're doing something on campus. Um, it, we scheduled this long before this um, new Patriots Week, but it's called um, Free Speech on Free Speech. And it's going to be a dialogue, an all-day symposium on October 5th on campus. It's open to the public. And it is... And you can you can search for it at, at the Berkeley Center for New Media is putting this on. And and Carol Christ is going to give the opening address and then Robert Reich is going to speak. And we're very much trying to get a conservative uh, speaker to offer positions on this. And we're really trying to create a dialogue about at the meta level. What is free speech? What does it mean? And, and you're absolutely right. The university at one level stands for free speech, free inquiry which, by the way, goes all the way back to the issues of tenure and the foundations of the campus. And Berkeley in particular, it's our legacy. It's yeah. what we stand for. Agreed. So we have to defend it. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you're doing that, and I'm glad you mentioned the thing. We've got to wrap it up now. So uh, thanks, Ken Goldberg, for coming on talking about robots and free speech. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Eric. Great talking to you. Excellent. All right, folks, uh, Till next week, keep your minds open.